Welcome to Trauma-Informed Caring, an Essential Conversations podcast brought to you by the Mid-America Addiction Technology Transfer Center, funded by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Although funded by SAMHSA, the content on this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. We have seen, both in the research and in real life, that well-being inspires well-doing. So wherever you are right now, we invite you to pause. Step away from what you're doing if you can, or if you can't, then engage with this next practice as best you can, but give yourself the gift to check in with your body, let your body and mind catch up and be in the same place with this simple stretching practice. I invite you to get comfortable where you are. If you like, you can close your eyes, but you don't have to. You can allow your gaze to drift away from the computer or the source of work to something that is pleasing or soothing to you. Take a deep breath in. And as you breathe in, lift your right arm over your head, reach as tall as you can up, 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 up to the sky. And then as you exhale, just let it come down. And now do that on the other side. Inhale, lift the left arm. Reach, 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 up, up, up. Exhale, lower it. Good. Now this next time when we inhale, I want you to lift both arms. Inhale. Reach both arms up, 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 up. Even stand on your toes if you feel like it. Good. Exhale. Let them kind of just come down in front of you slowly. Good. Now, if you're in a chair, you can put your hands, palms on thighs. If you're standing, you can just let your arms hang beside you and lift your shoulders all the way up towards your ears. Get as tense as you can. Even clench your teeth. Tighten every muscle in your body. And then when you exhale, like really drop those shoulders, shake a little bit, shake around a little bit. Good. One more time. Inhale, 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 clench the shoulders, clench every muscle in your body. Tight, 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 tight. And then exhale hard and shake around a little. Good. With this next exhale, push your toes deeply into the ground. And if you're seated, you could push your hands deeply into the tops of your thighs. Just notice that you are safe right now. And then exhale, relax, roll your neck from side to side. Just notice how your body's feeling without judgment. One more deep inhale, stretch your arms out to the sides this time, as far as you can. Inhale, stretch out to the sides. Reach, 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 hold for a beat, hold another beat, and then relax. Bring your hands in towards your sternum. Place one hand over the heart, the other hand on top of it. Press gently but firmly into your sternum. And then release and open your eyes. Thank you for joining us in this brief grounding practice. I'm Roxanne Pendleton. And I'm Andrea Dalton. And this is Trauma-Informed Caring. We are so excited today, and you all are in for a real 
gift uh, of this time with these two leaders. And I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. First, Marsha Morgan. Hi, Andrea and Roxanne. I'm Marsha Morgan, and I'm the founder and president of Resilience Builders, which is a small business that really focuses on bringing trauma-informed practices and organizational change to, well, to any organization that is interested, I guess. Thank you. And Susan Woodford? Good afternoon. I'm Susan Woodford. I'm the executive director of First Resources Corporation in Southeast Iowa. And I've been with the company for about two and a half years. And we do services for folks with intellectual disabilities, brain injuries, and physical disabilities. We also have a large behavioral health unit to address mental health and substance abuse issues. Thank you. Thank you both. And I'm just going to say on a personal note that Marsha Morgan was actually the COO of behavioral health at our hospital. Our, um, we work for University Health Behavioral Health, and that's a community mental health center, as many of you know, attached to an inner city urban core teaching hospital that's also an essential hospital. And she was there. I won't tell you how long. I'll let her tell you. But it was a while. And she was also instrumental in um, being part of the group that created the Missouri model of trauma-informed care, the developmental model for implementation of that in organizations. And so it has been a joy to get to know her. And Susan is one of the people that uh, we get to work through with the, the MidAmerica ATTC here in coaching her leadership team and her organization. And they are phenomenal. They're the kind of group that is already implementing so many trauma-informed practices. And um, we just get to help them hone and, and watch them shine. So we are delighted to have both of you with us today. Thank you. I think that leads really well, Roxanne, into the first question that I have today. I would love to hear from either one of you or both of you, what is one of the most impactful things that you have seen trauma-informed care do just at any point in your experience with it? Well, that's a great question, Andrea. And I think for us at, as an organization and a large organization, it's actually helped us allow to stop and get centered and be extremely strategic and focused and thoughtful in what we do each day. So with our management team, it, it has helped us get present uh, actually on a Monday morning to start our week and to carry that through our week and have an opportunity for us to really gauge where we're at and where we need to support and hold each other up and who's doing well and who needs a little extra support throughout the week. So that's been extremely beneficial to our organization for sure. Yeah, I would think especially, again, we're still in the context of a major pandemic and so many people are leaving their workplaces or just not finding that where they're working, they feel connected any longer. So I think a huge benefit to what's going on at, at your organization Absolutely, especially on a Monday morning. And yeah. we, we provide services 24 hours a day. So with the pandemic, we don't have the option of shutting down and resetting. Mm -hmm. We have to figure out how to keep moving forward and provide the best services we can to the individuals that we serve. This is actually the best time to be working on trauma-informed care for our organization through the pandemic 
uh, is how to hold each other up and how to really embrace the folks that are on the on board and the team and and really nurture and support each individual, every single individual that works for us on a daily basis. I love that you said that, Susan, because I know that some organizations, one of the roadblocks actually to implementing trauma-informed care is that people think it is uh, just one more thing we have to do. Um, another thing we have to check off our list and we are already overwhelmed. And so here we are in a pandemic. We don't have time. This isn't the right time where in reality, like you said, it's, it's not so much a, um, an extra task. It's more a way of doing things so that you can discern what is needed so that you can discern the best way to, um, care for one another and respond as you move forward. So thank you for reminding us and our listeners of that. What about you, Marsha? Maybe do something. I love that Susan talked about kind of at the, at the organizational level and how that is, is impacting. I think for me, what is been most impactful is when you see the aha on a person's face. As you're talking to folks and and we talk about changing the question from what's wrong with you to what's happened to you, right? And, And when you see that people have this insight and this immediate response of, oh, that's that's what's missing. That's the other piece that we've also seen is this look of, of terror or, oh my gosh, I, maybe I did harm and I didn't know. I didn't ask the right question. So I didn't know that this person was actually dysregulated and operating from fight, flight, freeze. And so I said something off. I, I might've said something mean. And to see people have that insight, they have that aha and then have that attitude change of, I want to know more. Tell mm-hmm. me, tell me more. Tell me about what else is going on in these people's bodies so that I can be better at mm-hmm. what it is that I do. And I think that's been really important for us as, as management team and, and our leadership to get that understanding on our approach to our, our staff, because it's changing the culture of how we also approach, approach our clients. So we need wellness with our staff in order to help our, our clients be well. And we've seen a lot of progress with that. And the other big piece I've seen, Marsha, that you talk about is you have that aha moment and you're doing that, you're having that, that, that conversation with your staff, but then there has to be follow-up. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing that we've learned is, so you understand what the situation is, you understand where they're coming from, then do you check back in? And do you show that true concern and care that they are okay? Because, you know, it doesn't, it's not one conversation that's going to that help change that, that attitude or that, that fear or that concern that that individual is experiencing. So we do much more follow-up than we've done before. Absolutely. And the listening, I think the listening mm-hmm. and really giving people the opportunity to take the risk to say, and to have the insight, Hey, this is what was going on in my, in for me mm-hmm. too. It, mm-hmm. I, you know, maybe I was dysregulated, mm-hmm. you right. know, I was and being able, being safe enough to say, tap me out, you know, I mean, and are having enough insight to be able to tap themselves out to say, I need to walk away for a few minutes. And so it's, it's support to the people that we're serving, but it's also, really for people to understand themselves a little bit better. And then to recognize 
I think the other piece is to recognize and to help people think about how to detach from outcomes so that they can leave with compassion satisfaction, so that they leave the job knowing that they've done the very best they can do, even if things don't turn out exactly the way that we had hoped for, right? Right. And it's like, if I've done the best I can do, then I can leave knowing that I've given it my all. And I can feel good about that as opposed to, well, Johnny didn't stay sober, so I must be a failure. It's like, no, (laughs) you know, there were other things going on in his life. You provided the support, you provided the counseling, you provided the the intervention, and there are still things that are still going to happen. And you've still done a good job because this work is really hard. It is really... Anytime we have more than two people, I mean, we work at this and the dynamics Anytime we are... have just two people. Right. <laughs> Sometimes it's just me. That's <laughs> true. I noticed a lot of compassion for yourself in some of that um, self-compassion. You know, I did the best I could. I can release this with a sense of satisfaction and um, kindness and even, even feel good about the work I did, even though it didn't have the outcome I hoped. Um, listening to you both talk, it makes me want to hear about when did you first have the aha moment? How how did this come to you in the very beginning? Oh, um, I'll share because it was in 2009, DMH, Department of Mental Health here in Missouri, decided that they were going to offer the opportunity for early adopters to become trauma-informed organizations. And I, as was 35 years already in the field and had worked all ages, inpatient, outpatient, just a variety of different kinds of settings and a variety of different roles. And so as I was driving to Jeff City for the first um, consultation, I was thinking, well, I'm going to tell them all about this because I think I really know something and I'm glad to be an early adopter. And (laughs) yeah, I know you're laughing. (laughs) So, you know, so the, the national consultant very early on said, you know, here, there are trauma-informed practices. This isn't just about trauma. It's about practice. And one of the things that you should, you should do is you should ask permission to shut the door. And I was like completely freaked out, you know, had the figurative whack on the side of the head. What? 35 years in this field and nobody has ever told me to ask permission to shut the door. And here I could be triggering people. I could be doing harm just by not asking permission to shut the door. Everybody always told me, shut the door so that you have confidentiality, shut the door for privacy. It was like, okay, if I don't know it, and I'm 35 years in the field, what else do I not know? If I don't know it, I have to assume nobody knows it. So that's my, that was my aha, Roxanne. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> that I was arrogant and stupid at the same time. (laughs) Oh, haven't we all been there? (laughs) The older (laughs) I get, the the less I realize I ever knew. And I used to be so dang confident. Oh my goodness. I've learned that every time I figure out all the answers, then they change all the questions. They Mm -hmm. do. So they do. How about you, Susan? 
How did you get the aha at the very beginning? Well, I've been in the field about the same as you, Marsh, about 35 years. And, and it's interesting because in a lot of my profession, in my, in my career, I've been a change agent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I'm coming in with this product and I'm going to help create positive change. And I'm looking at what is this resistance to my brilliance of how we're going to change this mm-hmm. model? And it was and it's sort of like what you said, you come in with this, you having all the answers. And in reality, it, you know, I wasn't very um, aware of really or meeting folks where they were at. I wanted them, them to be where I was at. And so for me, I, I, I remember sitting in a, in a meeting and, and, and folks sort of set me straight a little bit that they weren't ready to hear me and what I had to say. And it, and it, it stopped me in my tracks about how I did my approach. And I've been in the field in a lot of different ways in the sense I work with communities, I work with organizations, I work with individuals. And one thing I always try to do a a check for me and it it comes to me is, did I treat them with dignity and respect and was I really listening? And I think you guys spoke to that is listening is the most important piece to me of picking up what I need to hear and understand in order to help move folks where they need to be moved not where I think they need to be moved. And so it sort of, it would discount other folks, their opinions, their experience and their, their expertise immediately. So I've had a lot of aha moments um, since I've been in working with y'all uh, with our, with our coaches and in our leadership with trauma informed care. It happened a few weeks ago where I was really frustrated and I was, I was, placing my, my frustration on people. And so I took two hours and I took a drive and I had to get back in touch with me a little bit. And I found out it had nothing to do with any of them. Mm. It had to do with me and how to get refocused and centered again. And, and by using the tools that we've been learning, I've been able to put that into practice and, and feel good about that. But that has also allowed me to give permission, so to speak, and understand when those other my the other staff and colleagues I work with they need those moments too. So mm-hmm. by having our leadership learn these skills, it's assisting our other leadership to have permission, and then giving their staff permission. And so it's had a wonderful positive ripple effect. Yeah, and I affirm that that is not the easiest thing to do as a leader um, to risk to be vulnerable enough to say I need time out. And I'm and I'm gonna go take it. Um, I think that takes some courage and some commitment to uh, being trauma informed, living trauma informed, caring. But I also recall Susan one of the meetings that we were in with you with with some of your team when you were talking about that, and they were talking about that. And you are 100 right. That gave them that modeled for them w- what leaders do, and it gave them permission to do it and to grant that permission to others. And so. I think as leaders, whether it's formal or informal, people watch us, people watch us and every second, every second. And we never know what, um, what small thing we might do that might grant people the permission they need to be well. Exactly. Um, So that's excellent. Yeah. I also heard in your, as you were speaking, what was occurring to me was that this treating people with dignity and respect and really listening. I feel like that is a huge part of being culturally responsive. And I wonder 
if either of you um, has a story or some thoughts you might share about, can we be trauma-informed without being culturally responsive? Um, uh, I, I know my, my thought on that, <laughs> but I know a lot of organizations have like separate like DE and I um, teams and then trauma-informed care teams. And I'm just wondering about, you know, how, if, if you do DE and I work without understanding the impact of trauma, can you, like Marcia said earlier, do more harm? If you mm-hmm. try to do trauma-informed care without being culturally responsive, can you do more harm? Would either of you speak to the intersection of those? I don't know if you saw me lean out of my chair when you asked the question. <laughs> I did. <laughs> so I have a really strong opinion about this. I, I was hoping you would share. No, because of the sources of trauma, we have to address the issues of power differential mm-hmm. and systemic oppression and the isms, all of mm-hmm. them, racism, ageism, sexism, all of them create adverse experiences for people, right? Yeah. And so until we until we ha- understand and have common language, common ground on what are we talking about with regard to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Mm-hmm, you see, belonging mm-hmm. is so important. We can't, we are not going to be successful in addressing trauma and vice versa. You cannot do diversity, equity, and inclusion without addressing trauma because of, because we have this historical trauma. We have, we have systems issues. I hear on different shows, different programs, people say, oh, there is no such thing as systemic oppression. It's like, I don't know where people are because there is. There is in the research. I mean, the research tells us that, you know, in terms of, and, and, and it continues. So yes, I have some really strong feelings. She's having really strong feelings. Y'all can't see her, but she's clearly (laughs) passionate about this topic. And so I just want to first thank you for, for sharing and give you a moment to breathe and see if Andrea or Susan wants to add anything to that, to that topic. Um, Perhaps even along the lines of how can leaders be aware of those dynamics? and successfully lead um, with awareness? I think organizationally for us, I come from another state and I came to the Midwest unaware of some of the the cultures and the norms Hmm. that I come from, where I came from a place where it was very transient and there was a lot of mobility. And today I work in a place where it's intergenerational and it's very closed and just embedded and the trauma is embedded in there as well. Mm-hmm. And I never really have seen that before in the sense of just geographically where I, where I live, um, from where I used to live. And I've come to understand it much better as a leader of how to work within that system, so to speak, just in, with family dynamics and community dynamics and the importance of it and what is healthy loyalty and unhealthy loyalty that still continue to sort of be connected to the trauma. So we have a lot of family systems and community systems that are stuck in the trauma itself. I think when I started this process working with trauma-informed care in our organization, first thing I brought up is my community is so traumatized. That was what I noticed when I came into this small community. So if my community is traumatized, our staff are traumatized and our clients are traumatized and it's all interrelated. So yes, there's can be even some oppression that comes with that. And how do we free folks 
from that oppression and still feel loyal in a healthy way to their family systems and to their community systems that they work in and live in. So that's been a, a sort of an aha moment actually for me too as well is understanding my culture that I live in and I work in and how is it exhibited within the in my workday. And so I've become more aware of that on a daily basis, but it's definitely there. I agree with Marsha with all the isms. They're everywhere and mm-hmm. we are affected by it daily. But if we don't bring it up and we don't talk about it, they're going to stay there and they're going to have more power than we do. So I think using our trauma-informed care model in the leadership role has helped sort of bring that to the surface and discuss that. We have the power. We're regaining the power back, so to speak, from that trauma. That makes sense. Yeah, there's something so important about creating the safety and trustworthiness in order to be able to address those isms, those things, you know, whatever, those long-held beliefs, those the impacts of all the different types of community trauma, systemic trauma. Yeah. And I I was thinking too, you know, another ism that I've been sort of, I don't know, thinking about maybe a little bit more lately is ableism. And as a clinician, you know, reflecting back on my, my time working in a state hospital setting and in an inpatient behavioral health unit, like how many times did that influence the way I responded to you know, some issue with a patient, um, probably more than I'm willing to admit because I had no idea. Right. I, I mean, I just didn't, it was not part of my awareness. Um, but as an able bodied person, as someone, uh, with, you know, various privileges as we all, you know, we all have different identities and things, but that dynamic mentioned before, you know, the power differentials, (laughs) I think it might've been Marsha who said that those, those power dynamics in the like therapist client relationship and how our systems just like perpetuate those ableism things, those, all the isms really. Um, But anyway, so I've been doing a lot of self-reflection on that and it's hard to think about what I did and how far I've come. So I also appreciate that we talked a little bit about compassion, (laughs) satisfaction and self-compassion, you know, being able to say like, I did what I could do with what I knew. And now I know something different and I'm going to do something different. And I think that that's a really powerful way to approach not just trauma-informed care, but also DEI related issues. All right. So this is another one of my things, my, my (laughs) obsessions, right? Is we can lay the groundwork and we have the conversation And we have those crucial conversations or those, you know, insightful conversations. Again, this is like, I've been doing this work for 50 years and I haven't seen policies change. And I think as leaders, we have to start taking a look at our policies and we have to step back and we have to say, how is this policy inclusive? How does this policy promote relationship? How does this policy create physical and emotional safety? And we have to start changing our policies and we have to look at measures. You know, we have a school districts and, you know, it's not just here in Missouri, it's all over the country where we have African-American boys who are suspended at much higher rates than any other demographic. It's like, how could There has to be a policy that addresses that. The policy, and as you look at the policy, then is it training, the monitoring of 
the impact of what it is that we do. We have the measures. How is it that we have so few? I will tell you again, I was I was the director for rehab services at the state hospital for many years. In all those years, I only had one African-American occupational therapist apply for a job. She was there for three months. And then she was offered like five times the salary that we paid Mm. her in corporations because there were none. How could that be? When I was in my master, my PhD program, I was told was my university was recruiting in Malaysia more than they were recruiting in inner city, Kansas city. Excuse Mm. me. That's a policy decision. Mm-hmm. Wow. And if we don't address as we have to as leaders, it, this isn't even in my mind, it's not even an invitation. It is a mandate that we address our policies and we change those policies. And I'll shut up because I'm I'm on my soapbox. I I, I like your soapbox. Like <laughs> all your soapboxes, Marsha. That's why we want to hear from you. <laughs> but I do appreciate, yeah, I think that's actually a trauma-informed practice is knowing when you've said at least part of what you want to say and making space for other uh, input. So see, even here, you're modeling it. Um, I remember you shared with me, it was the first time I ever saw the cartoon. I know many of you are probably very familiar with it. And it has people watching a ball game over a fence. And you shared with me this cartoon and it was, not it's a cartoon, but it was, you know, written as though it's a cartoon. And it said, you know, equality, everyone gets one box to stand on. So the older, taller person had more than enough space to see over the fence and the medium sized person, you know, could, could see. Okay. And this, the shorter person, or maybe the child couldn't see at all and, and that, but you know, they're all being treated equally. And then, um, equity was taking the box that wasn't needed by the tallest person and offering it to the smallest person. And then every single person could see over the fence. And I know there's a lot more that can be said about that drawing and that example, but I remember just, it was one of those moments, Marsha, where the the world paused for just a second. And I, I felt, Oh, right. And I will say as a mom of twins, there's a lot in our world that was demanded to be equal. You know, you have, you have twins and you try to treat them equally, even though they're very different people. My sons are very different people. And I remember when my husband and I, um, I've told the story before, but when we first got together, he has four children and they are, none of them are twins, but he really had a lot to teach me about giving the kid what they needed, not giving every kid the same thing. And so in my home life, I was seeing it. And that was pretty close to the time I started working at a uh, university health, which was then Truman medical centers. And so that understanding of giving people what they need, knowing the oppression, knowing the trauma, knowing the roadblocks and challenges that certain people have had that many of us can't even imagine and giving people what they truly need as a piece of trauma-informed care and leading and writing policies in a way that we guarantee that we're behaving equitably, I think is key. And there's another piece of that illustration too, where the fence is taken down. And that's labeled yes. as justice. Right. So I think that is really relevant to this conversation too, that like, sometimes it's not that we need to give people something else. It's that we need to take away the barriers Get rid that are standing in the way um, that are blocking people. They're blocking, you know, experiences from taking place that are, you know, going to benefit people in some way. And, you know, that being down of the barriers, again, that's really difficult work, but as leaders, like being able to look at what policies do we have that are 
creating more barriers to accessing things. I know one of the conversations we've had oftentimes in, um, in our behavioral health center is, you know, the, there have been policies. I'm not exactly sure what the policy is right now, but uh, regarding people who miss appointments and whether or not they will continue to be a patient after a certain number of missed appointments. And I, I know this is not an uncommon practice. Like this happens in a lot of places. Um, but what kind of a barrier does that create then for people to access services when they're ready to? Um, because maybe, th- or maybe there are other things that are keeping them uh, from getting to their appointments. And so I know that's something we've worked on quite a bit is like, you know, actually asking the questions and listening to the answers. And, you know, if it's a transportation thing, we'll figure, we can figure that out. Like that's, that's relatively easy. Um, So these barriers don't always have to be like huge major things. Sometimes they are just really small shifts in the way that we approach whatever that situation might be. I'd like to shift the conversation just a little here and ask either of our guests, if you have any stories to share about, was there a time you tried to implement a trauma-informed practice or policy and the organization wasn't developmentally ready? And how did you, or did you maybe ignore some, something else that was going on, an emotional connection to something or a, an assumption, a deeply held belief and whatever you were trying to do was not working. And how did you course correct? I think for us at a leadership level, because we decided to take this approach, starting with our senior management, I think was the best approach, but I don't think I was expecting the resistance um, as a leader that I did get. And so that sort of threw me off a little bit. But what we did is we redirected in the sense is how do we engage folks for the buy-in where they really do see the benefit to it. And so what we did is we actually slowed down and and gave other folks the, the, the head, be in charge of these activities and these thought process instead of it being us. And so what happened is all of a sudden now is we're transforming in the sense where we do mindful activities and we do fun activities beginning of our management meeting every week. And, and now they're volunteering and they're coming to the table and they have the buy-in. That's how I know it's successful. At the beginning, I was in the back, you know, after my meeting, after we did it, we thought it was so cool. We saw the resistance. We're like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with that person? We didn't, we didn't even... <laughs> You know, this is so awesome and I don't understand if they don't get it, but we didn't stop to listen really what they were saying and really how much trauma they were experiencing themselves because they did not want to stop. They didn't want to be present because they were human doings at that time and they had all the stress, especially with the pandemic going on. And just to stop to be a human being for a minute was really scary. And just to let their humanness down and being vulnerable. So allowing them to go through that process and get engaged and and go to where they're comfortable for now with smaller risk instead of, you know, saying, what am I doing wrong? Or why aren't they engaging? And we, you know, we're trying to figure it out why it wasn't working the way we wanted to see it working. Instead, we let go and gave and turned over sort of that, that expectation and, and allow them to be where they were at and saying, well, you're all just so cognitive. You know, we want you to feel, you know, you always think, oh, if they're, you know, we're invoking feeling, then that must mean we're doing something great. That's not always necessarily true. Maybe my approach or my feeling that I'm feeling like I'm getting somewhere, that's not always accurate and it can be harmful to folks. 
And so we've stepped back from that and allowed the playfulness to come and the comfort level to come. So now it's becoming more natural, but it's engaging those leaders to be the leaders in this at the place that they're at, not at the place we're at. So that's been helpful. Thank you. I, sure. One thing I liked about the way you told that story, you even you even demonstrated it right there. So you tried this new practice and you thought it was going to be fantastic and you <laughs> did it. And then people weren't responding the way you thought. And you thought, what's wrong with them? There's that question, right? And right. then you stopped, you slowed right. down and you said, wait a minute, they're not safe. They're not, right. they're not feeling comfortable. Mm-hmm. We're pushing this on them. I wonder what's happening for them. I wonder what trauma this might bring up. They're used to being doing, 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 go, go, go versus what? Just feel, just be, just be allowed to have a feeling and take a breath. So even in your storytelling, you modeled, I think the way that we tend to do it, you know, what's wrong with them? I have this great new thing we're going to do charge. Why isn't anyone following me? (laughs) Right. And then you stepped back and you, um, that whole idea of meeting people where they are. And passing off the leadership of it. Um, you don't have to always be the one doing it, right? And then right. oh, time for play, time for fun. And, and, you know, I don't think we acknowledge sometimes in our management, in the workforce, and we're always so busy and we're trying, you know, productivity and getting things done and things like that. But the trauma that folks have had with previous leadership. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. You know, I, I'm sometimes somebody else's different boss on a different day, depending on what's, what, what's happened in their in their in their past experiences and really acknowledging that there's a reason and a good reason why they don't trust. And I need mm-hmm. to honor that and, you know, that I need to earn that trust by modeling, as you said, Roxanne, and, and really behaving appropriately. So they do feel that trust. So there, I feel like there's a lot of trauma. I, I see, especially in, in some of this is culturally, too. We have a lot of folks where we're white collar, you're blue collar, and we don't trust you. And you're the man. And so does, you know, I'm just saying that, Mm -hmm. you know, stereotypical statements, but the reality is it's true. And they don't believe why would you be listening to us? You're making these decisions. So in giving that empowerment for the management team and, you know, getting out there and being boots on the ground with your staff is imperative to build that trust and get rid of that, that help heal for that trauma from those previous experiences. So it's, it's, it's been very insightful and helpful for us. Thank you. Mm-hmm. How about you, Marsha? Any stories or examples of when something wasn't going the way you planned or uh, hoped and, and finding a way to course correct? Um, again, I'm going to kind of do it at a, at a more specific level. Um, as I was really trying to get the hospital on board, I would talk to various people kind of to Susan's point, it would be like, look, if everybody understood this and if everybody do it, this would just be like the most wonderful place. And people would come here and they would heal and, and people would have fun at work and blah, blah, blah. And what I learned is um, that I have people who are driven by the research versus the practices, right? Mm. So I had to learn to change my message so that people could hear me. And the other thing, again, because um, every department is every department and they have their own culture and they have their own processes. One of the things that I needed to do is 
know a little bit about their procedures and processes so I could give them examples of things that might be triggering patients or that might be not helpful. So I'll give you a a really quick example because they were my champions. When we met our sleep university health, um, when I was still there, the sleep center was at a very high class hotel. And our patients are 60% Medicaid. And most of them have never probably, I mean, if they, if maybe they worked at the hotel, but most of the time, if they would have come to that hotel, they would have been put out because of the way they look. Right. Um, And so what, as we were and, and yet that's where we do our sleep work. And so many of our people sleep issues, as I was talking, as we were talking to the folks at the sleep center, they were and one of their complaints was, you know, compliance with CPAP machines. And it's like, well, you know, once they understood, you're asking people to put a mask over their nose and their mouth and to be confined. And if they've been physically or sexually abused, particularly sexually abused, excuse me, no wonder. And once they, you know, once they got, once again, as the ahas went, then they were able to move forward. I just, I share that, that example is some, let me give you another really quick one. Um, when we were, when we wanted to introduce this through our, through our uh, chamber of commerce, they were like, don't say trauma. Don't say trauma. (laughs) No, don't say trauma. Bad word. So I said, well, how does toxic stress sound to you? (laughs) Oh, we like toxic stress. Nice. Yes. We can talk to, yes. Tell the companies they have toxic stress. Okay. We can do that. (laughs) Right. I mean, we're still doing that, Marsha. <laughs> it's like, excuse me. And then just a sequel to that story. So right right before COVID, they had a big rollout and they had done this and the chamber had done this stuff about what are your top three mental health issues? And one or two was trauma. And I'm thinking, right. why did you ask me to talk about toxic stress when people know it's trauma? Ah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so so, but the, the other, let me say one other quick one. The other one is implementing screening too quickly. Mm. People get it. They yes. want to do it, Yep. but they don't have any of the, they, they don't have any of this backup systems. I mean, you, right. you can't just screen for trauma and then not have a referral process. And so, and, and not have your folks who are screening for trauma have a support system in place, right. have an opportunity to debrief because now they're hearing stories that yeah. they may never have heard before. Mm-hmm. You know, they were that, you know, they were just taking temps and, and blood pressures and weights. And now they're asking some more information from people and, um, and, and really, you know, just advising people not to implement screening if you're, if you don't have all this other system in place. Thank you for bringing that up, Marsha. That is one of the things that we have seen too, that people, when they get it, they're like, okay, what can we do? There's something we can do right away. And that's one of the first things they want to do is take a survey of everyone who walks through their door and maybe even everyone on their staff and see what everyone's aces are. 
And then they are surprised when you ask people about trauma, they tell you about trauma and then you hear about the trauma. And then suddenly you are covered with and surrounded by this deep, deep pain without any, um, like you said, a, a way to refer. We don't ask people to just we, we don't pull people in, for example, to um, a physical medical doctor appointment and rip open a wound and then say, and I got to leave now and leave the wound open. Right. Like we, we have to have a way to wrap people back up so that they can walk out the door and be functional in the next place of their life. And if we don't have systems and people and compassionate ways to do that, and then to help the staff, like you said, debrief or understand how to, um, complete their own stress cycle, how to metabolize the the stress chemicals of their own secondary trauma response. That's normal. Then we end up creating so much pain and so much more trauma when we're trying to become trauma-informed. And I think that that is a, a really important reminder to all leaders in organizations anywhere. As you learn about trauma-informed care, the first thing is not let's take ACEs surveys, um, adverse childhood experiences surveys with everyone. In fact, I would argue, and I, I think maybe I learned this from you, Marsha, that um, we don't need to know exactly what someone's ACEs are unless we're working with them as clinicians or physicians um, or some kind of healing modality. We just need to know that everyone has them and then create a right. culture that is kind and safe and supporting for everyone. There's not really any advantage of knowing everyone's little nitty gritty detail in terms of being the leader or the boss or the coworker. If we just behave with trauma-informed practices and principles, we'll be caring mm-hmm. and we'll create that space where healing can happen. If you really want to ask people something, ask them what really gets under their skin. What do <laughs> they do when they're on, you know, when they're upset? Mm-hmm. Or just, I mean, I don't use the word dysregulated. It's what, what? What bothers you? And then how do you, what do you, what do you do? And then what do you need in order to calm yourself? Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Uh, yes. You know, it's because that's more important to me. It's Absolutely. like, all of us are going to dysregulate it at some point. Cause we're all human, mm-hmm. I think. And then, um, but it's like, how much can I take? And then mm-hmm. what do I do when I'm overwhelmed? And then what do I need? Mm-hmm. What do I need from my supervisor? What do I need from my coworkers? If I'm a client, what'll help me calm down? Mm-hmm. And then, I remember, and then we can maybe provide that. Yeah, I think that's actually part of the kind of supervising you did. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I have a memory of being in a, a fairly new employee and being in one of the classes of orientation that you know lasted um, several weeks. And I have a vague memory of working on a worksheet where I I talked about what the the word trigger wasn't used. But, you know, when I was upset or when something got to me, did I know what I needed to calm down? You know, and I'm pretty sure you were facilitating that class and just having that list of like, I know how to calm myself down. This is what I need. And then talking with my supervisor about those things. Um, Fast forward several months, you know, things happen, upsetting things happen. And he was able to, because he had seen that sheet, he was able to pull that out and give me some encouragement, some permission, and some coaching on doing what I needed to do um, mm-hmm. because something really, really upsetting had happened. And I I know that many organizations do those worksheets, if you will, with their clients. I'm wondering about doing those everywhere like that, mm-hmm. you know, with staff. Because if we know, like you said, we're human, 
We're going to get upset about things. What do we need? How do we calm? How do we come back to a place of calm? It's not only our own emotional intelligence that's enhanced, but all of our team can work together and we can co-regulate one another. We do that a lot with coaching. We have a we we have incorporated coaching into our supervi- our supervision in a positive way that we want our 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 supervisors to to understand who who works with them and how they can support them. And there was some resistance to that at the beginning until they found out that it wasn't punitive, that it was a positive experience. And actually yesterday I had to meet, I wanted to meet with one of our direct staff and her new supervisor and then her supervisor, supervisor. And this individual had so much passion about her work. But how she got to get into the meeting was she was concerned about some things, but her passion was incredible. And so they were sort of looking at her like, well, she she looks like she, you know, the new supervisors, why is she complaining about this and this and this? It had nothing to do with about complaints. It was about her and how she wanted to be better at what she did, how she cared about the people she worked Mm -hmm. with. And so when we were talking about how wonderful she was as an employee and how she cared, the tears just came. And it was true. It was true pain. I could see she had trauma and it stopped it, which was wonderful. What a blessing. First of all, that she was vulnerable enough to, to put that out there of how we could come in. And you talked about this is how do you have the capacity from your staff and your support systems around you? So if you do see that trauma, what do we have in place to help her? Yes, she's a great employee. But I'm when I'm walking out, I'm thinking she could be a great leader in our organization, not, you know, not just a direct staff. This this young lady has so much potential, but how are we going to foster it by helping her in the healing process? So we had set up some great constructs of how does this how often is the supervisor going to meet? How are we going to communicate? What's best for you to communicate? It's not an email that's impersonal. It does. You don't feel connected. You feel that loneliness. You don't feel a part of the organization. So they made a commitment and how often they're going to meet on a weekly basis and how do they, you know, get those needs met. When I walked out, I felt like a proud trauma-informed care parent in the sentence <laughs> that, oh, y'all got it. Y'all, y'all were ready for it and you heard it. And mm-hmm. that's what it's about is keeping the, those folks engaged and honoring where they're at, but also honoring her pain. You know, she was absorbing all these clients' pains because she just loved them. And she doesn't, she's young and she doesn't know about boundaries and she doesn't know about self-care the best. She wants to do well. So how can we help her with those great skills to even be better at what she is at doing and, 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 and just, just support her. She was, she was just the most amazing young woman I've met in a long time. And, and I think by us incorporating this, this, this approach, and it is an approach of how do we integrate this approach working with our staff, you know, you get those moments of success. And yesterday was that moment of success that I felt we, we get those and we need to embrace those, those successes and share those successes. So we can continue to, to, to provide that to our staff. So it was, it was so cool. That's the kind of story that makes me have the good kind of tingles, you know, like my arms are tingling right now. I'm thinking about how that situation could have been one that was very punitive and that even ended with her leaving. Right. Exactly. You looked deeply, you listened deeply, and then you discerned not only kind of what was happening for her, but who she was, one of her strengths, you know, some of her core strengths. And you were able to 
yeah, you were able to turn something that could have been a, a punitive and terrible experience for her and for you losing a staff member to a, an opportunity for not just modeling everything that you've been teaching, but really someone in your organization growing into, you know, a truer, better, stronger version of themselves. And then having the opportunity, you're already imagining her giftedness mm-hmm. for the future, right? Like, Absolutely. I just, wow. That's Absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you. Sure. Those are the good days. Great days. <laughs> exactly. This has been a really amazing conversation. We're so glad that Marsha and Susan joined us today. And we want to give, as we always do, a few takeaways. We actually have more than three today because we had so much great conversation. So the first one that we want to leave you with is just that remembering to, um, you know, what, whatever you're, whatever you're doing, we're all in the middle of busy times, busy workplaces, you know, all of those things, so much going on, we're carrying a lot, um, but slowing down and listening. And then beyond that, remembering that when you do that, when you do slow down and really listen and and do all of those things that support trauma-informed caring in your interactions, in in all of those relationships, work or otherwise. Uh, And then, you know, if we've done those things, and the outcome still is not maybe what we expected, detaching from that, remembering that we've done what we can do, feeling some compassion, satisfaction in that. And then also kind of the other side of that is later on, if we recognize that maybe we didn't do such a great job, uh, maybe we know more now and just accepting that with self-compassion and choosing to do better or different the next time around. Yes. And the second takeaway has to do with diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and trauma-informed care, understanding that they are inseparable. We cannot do um, the work of growing in, in diversity, equity, and belonging without understanding the impacts of trauma. And we cannot do trauma-informed care without understanding systemic and historical trauma and all the isms that continue to play out in our work. And so as leaders, um, we need to take a look at our policies. We need to look at the different measures. We need to organize, um, excuse me, we need to recognize organizational trauma and previous negative workplace experiences and empower our teams by building trust, uh, by the way we model, helping our teams heal from trauma in the way we lead and the way we live trauma-informed caring as leaders. And that dovetails really well into our third takeaway, which is about meeting people where they are. So with all of that in the background, also recognizing that sometimes people need to hear certain pieces of information in different ways or at different times. Some people respond better to research. Some people respond better to the feelings part of it. Some people respond more to some practical strategies. And really learning the culture, wherever it is that we're talking about trauma-informed caring, uh, and then use examples that are relevant to their work um, and being willing to adapt, adapt your language, adapt your perspective, adapt your approach in order to support people in learning more information about this. And again, working toward world peace, right? That's what we're after. (laughs) Always, which begins with each of us and the peace inside of each of us. Mm -hmm. Right. And then how we, how we are agents of that peace, um, which actually leads really beautifully into the fourth takeaway, which is beware of implementing 
any kind of adverse childhood experiences or trauma screenings too quickly. In fact, understand that you don't necessarily need to implement those at all. If you want to ask a question, ask, ask someone about what upsets them and what they need. What do they need to be able to return to an experience of calm? And likewise, when you're working with someone, whether it's um, a client or a staff member, a family member, a neighbor, um, perhaps even your own self, uh, asking that trauma-informed question, I wonder what happened. I wonder what's happening. This behavior isn't coming from nowhere. And what can I do to return the person or myself, um, my staff to a sense of safety? And what can I see in this uh, encounter that shows me the strengths that are inherent in this person and, and build on that to create something truly good for all? Marsha and Susan, thank you again for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And my pleasure. And I certainly feel like we've worked toward our mission today of nurturing knowledge and inspiring courage for practical transformative action. Oh, yes. I hope that our listeners have those takeaways tucked away and that will sustain you as you continue to do your work in trauma-informed caring. And we do invite our listeners to check out our Mid-America ATTC website as well as our virtual room of refuge, where you can find a variety of support for your own well-being, access to our YouTube channel, and you can subscribe to our newsletter there. Our newsletter is called Conscious Connections. And we just thank you very much for joining us today. It is our hope that wherever you work and where you live, this podcast will offer you practical support for the practice of trauma-informed caring. Thank you.